I asked myself, what is a humble medical scientist doing thinking about ethics? We're not supposed to think about ethics. We're supposed to be value-free, pursuing our science in some sort of abstract world. When I published the report of the Commission on Social Determinants of Health, which I chaired, and I'll say a few words about that, one country commented, this is ideology with evidence. Now, that was supposed to be a criticism. (laughs) And in my introduction from the chair to my English review of health inequalities, I quoted that, and I said, if that was a criticism, I accepted it gladly. I do have an ideology that health inequalities that are avoidable are wrong, and we should put them right. If that's an ideology, count me in. But the evidence really matters. We can do a lot of useless things in the name of good intentions. We can do harmful things in the name of good intentions. So the evidence really matters. So having started life pretending I was a value-free medical scientist, I've done a lot of medical science in the last 40 years, I now think I'm involved in an intensely ethical concern, which is using the best evidence to try and reduce avoidable health inequalities. So that's what I want to talk about this evening. Let me start with the picture. This is life expectancy in selected countries. Life expectancy for men in Sierra Leone is less than 40. In Iceland, it's 80. A 42-year difference in life expectancy across the world. Life expectancy for women in Zimbabwe is 42. For women in Japan, it's 86. A 44-year difference in life expectancy. Now, I have in some part of my life thought about medical interventions, and I can tell you that if a medical intervention adds half a year to the population life expectancy, we think that's a fantastic success. There's almost nothing we know in medical science that would add half a year to the population's average life expectancy. We're talking about a 44-year difference in life expectancy across the world. And my starting assumption is that there's no good biological reason why we should have such a spread. Now, you may think, well, that's a problem of them in the poor countries, and we in the non-poor countries are fortunate. When we published the report of the Commission, I highlighted Glasgow. In the richest part of Glasgow, life expectancy for men is 82, and in the poorest part, it's 54. A 28-year difference in life expectancy, 11 kilometers apart in Glasgow. A man came up to me at a meeting in Brussels, and he said, I'm from Lindsay. I won't try and reproduce his accent, um, but he sounded it. Uh, I'm from Lindsay, and he said, I drink in the pub with somebody from Carlton. And I was talking to him the other night, and he said, 
he had no, made no arrangements for pensions. And I asked him, said this man, why not? He said, I'm 54. A bit like the man who, when he reached his 100th birthday, they asked him how he felt reaching such a great age. He said, if I'd known I was going to live so long, I would have looked after myself. <laughs> so in, in Glasgow, they may have the causal direct. I'm going to die at 54, so I may as well smoke and drink and do all those other things. So we have these dramatic differences across the world, within countries and between countries. And within countries, it's not just a difference between the best off and the worst off. My original studies in Britain were in the Whitehall studies of British civil servants. And what you see here is that it's not just a difference between top and bottom. These are civil servants classified by grade of employment. The office support grades the paper keepers, etc., the door, door people, have a higher mortality than the clerical grades, who have a higher mortality than the professionals and executives, who have a higher mortality than the top grade administrators. It's a social gradient that continues to the older stage. And low-grade civil servants are not poor. 40% of the world's population lives on $2 a day or less. And no civil servants live on $2 a day or less. Nobody in the poorest part of Glasgow lives on $2 a day or less. But we're talking in Glasgow about a 28-year difference in life expectancy, and we're talking about a social gradient. To me, the social gradient has profound implications. If you think health inequalities are confined to poor health for the poor, then you should do something about poverty. And no politician is in favour of poverty. They may not all be signed up to doing anything about it, but no one's in favour of it. But inequality, doing something about the social gradient, the whole of society, that does sort people out. We're talking about taking action across the whole of society to try and bring the health of everybody up to that of the best. That's not just taking action on the bottom. So I want to talk about a number of dilemmas. That's the, the problem. This is not a lecture on epidemiology. It's a discussion of ethics. The first, which may not sound like an ethical issue, is the explanation beloved of economists. Christmas before last, I was due to give a lecture in Stockholm in December. Because of snow at Heathrow, I couldn't get to Stockholm. They, Stockholm can deal with that stuff, but Heathrow, when it's white, you know, oh my gosh, we've never seen this before, so they closed Heathrow, but Stockholm, of course, was open. So they asked me to do the lecture down the telephone. I sent them, sent them my PowerPoint. And they said, because it was a government building, we couldn't use Skype. So I'm talking down the telephone. Next slide, please. I've got my laptop in front of me. And at the end, the chair said, will you take questions? I said, yes. And I hear somebody with speaking absolutely perfect English with a Swedish accent saying, have you thought of the possibility that 
health leads to wealth, not wealth leads to health. And I said, that gentleman is an economist. And the chair said, yes, he is, a very distinguished economist. How do you know? He said, I can diagnose it down the telephone from 2,000 kilometers. <laughs> Only economists have asked me that question, and economists have always asked me that question. That's the first question they ever ask. It's really curious. I've sat with highly distinguished economists. Can you explain this to me? Why do economists always think that it's health that leads to wealth, not the other way around? And we do-gooders of the world, we public health types, think it's social conditions that lead to ill health, and economists think it's ill health that causes social conditions. This sounds to me like right-wing versus left-wing, but I'm trying to deal with political parties of all persuasions. Why do the economists? And this distinguished, in fact, he was, he's the head of Glasgow University, he said, the equations are easier to write. No, no, you're having me on. That can't be the case. Because the implication, of course, is very important. If people's ill health determines their income and their wealth and where they live and everything else, then you don't need to do anything about social conditions. Just have a better health care system and break the link between ill health and people's income. In fact, when we published the English Review, the journal Social Science and Medicine commissioned eight commentaries on my review, the so-called Marmot Review. Six of them were absolutely fine. You know, they should have done a bit more of this, a bit more political, a bit more of that, a bit more of this, normal stuff what you expect when you ask academics to comment on other academics. Um, absolutely fine. Six out of the eight. Two said they got the model wrong. There is no relation between social conditions and health. And I said they must be economists. And sure enough, one was a professor at Harvard and the other was a professor at Johns Hopkins. There's no relation. I was so angry. I was allowed to publish a reaction to this it was only the Bowdlerized version that got published. My colleagues toned it down a bit. At the time, I was reading Dickens' Hard Times. I can't remember the beauty of Dickens' prose, but he talks about Coketown. And I should remember the details next time. He talks about Coketown and he said the maze of chimneys and walls, the meandering maze of chimneys and walls, was such that all the noxious gases were bricked in and all the clean air was bricked out. And I said, clearly, sick people chose to live in such airless conditions. It's not possible that these airless conditions could have caused illness. Sick people said, oh, I'd like to live in a place with no air. And then he describes working in the mill. His wonderful phrase talking about the looms, that the melancholy mad elephants were scrubbed and gleaming ready for the day's monotony. And then he describes the smashing, grinding, tearing of working in the mills. And I said, sick people obviously chose to work in these dark satanic mills. 
it can't be the case that these Dickensian living and working conditions caused ill health. It was sick people causing Dickensian working or choosing to associate themselves with it. And as we improved living and working conditions and health got better, an intellectually slack public health profession mistook correlation for causation and thought the improvement in living and working conditions led to improved health. How silly we were. It was just improvements in medical science and the rest was an epiphenomenon. It strains credulity, I have to say. And if we look at more recent dates, this was figure one from my English review. Each of these dots represents a small area of the country classified according to income deprivation. So these are the most affluent and these are the most deprived. And the top graph is life expectancy and the bottom graph is disability free life expectancy. And these remarkable social gradients that run all the way from the most affluent to the most deprived. Well clearly our economist friends think that people have this remarkable ability to choose. If you're a, just a tiny, tiny bit sick, you choose to live in nearly the best place to live. And if you're sort of middling sick, you choose to live in the middle order affluent. And if you're really sick, you choose to live... I can't do this. This is just ridiculous. I just can't sustain this fiction. And what's remarkable is that no matter how much evidence we produce, they don't read our evidence. They only read what other economists do. Somebody said, I heard you on Radio 4 last Monday. And of course, they had one of these leading American economists saying just, you know, with the interviewer who'd interviewed me said, Michael Marmot thinks that you're going to say that health leads to income. And he said, yeah, we know Michael thinks that. But he's mistaken, he's doing bad science. Because unless he's taken into account that income might lead, uh, that health might lead to income, he's got it wrong. Well, we had taken that into account. He just doesn't read, they don't read the evidence because it's not produced by economists. So I think what parades as a debate about empirical findings is actually a debate about ideology. And we need to flush it out and be clear what it is that we're debating. And as I said, I've signed up to an ideology. I think that health inequalities that are avoidable are unjust. And we can change things. Things can change really quickly. Look at Vietnam and Zambia. Both had terrible life expectancies, very low. Well, they were very poor countries. Look what's happened to Zambia. Life expectancy improved a bit and then went down. And look what's happened to Vietnam. Wow. Dramatic. And Costa Rica, a famous example of a poor country that always had good health and continued to improve despite low income the income of Costa Rica is one-fourth the income of the United States, one-fourth of purchasing power parities, 
and male life expectancy in Costa Rica is the same as in the United States. It's not health leading to wealth. It's social conditions that are improving health. And Costa Rica always... When I went to Costa Rica, I said, what did you do? How did you do this? They said, in 1948, we abolished the military. That's the first thing they said. 1948, we abolished the military. Wow. Go on, tell me some more. Well, why do countries have armed forces? Mostly, in this part of the world, it's to declare war on their own citizens. We decide to put the money into education instead. Instead of having soldiers fight our citizens, we educated our citizens. And we got clean water supply and improved the status of women. Hmm, that's not bad. Not all economists think that way. Amartya Sen, Nobel laureate, who was a member of the Global Commission on Social Determinants of Health, recognises the importance of income, but not income caused by health, but relative income as a cause of what he calls capabilities. So, in other words, inequities in income are important, relative are important because they lead to absolute differences in capabilities, which in turn lead to differences in ill health. Well, I managed to convince some people that they shouldn't listen to the wrong economists. And the Director General of WHO at the time, J.W. Lee, set up the Commission on Social Determinants of Health and invited me to chair it. We launched it in Santiago de Chile that's Ricardo Lagos, president of Chile, who hosted the launch. And J.W. Lee said the goal is not an academic exercise. Now, I've worked in a university all my life. I think academic exercises are good things, not bad things. Nevertheless, it's not an academic exercise, but to marshal scientific evidence as a lever for policy change. And that, indeed, is what we've been doing. So when we published the report of the commission... 2008, we called it Closing the Gap in a Generation. And we said the reason for taking action is one of social justice. When we were doing the commission, people said to me, no one will take you seriously, no government will take you seriously unless you can show it's good for the bottom line, unless you can make the economic case. Uh, being the father of three children who've gone through uh, teenagerhood and all that that entails, I think the bottom line is what, you know, when they, um, <laughs> the jeans that they wear. Um, so I wasn't very impressed with the bottom line argument. An economist from the University of Chicago said if you want to know how much a television is worth then see how much people are prepared to pay for a television okay so far so it is he said with a human life year see how much people are willing to pay for another life year and you've got the value of a human life well I said to him, does that mean that 
If a rich person is willing to pay more for another year of life than a poor person, a rich person's life is more valuable than a poor person's. Yeah, of course, he said. And an Indian's life is worthless. Indians don't value their lives. I was having lunch with a, a historian from <coughs> India and I said, the news from Chicago is that you don't value your life. In fact, I, one of the more painful days of my life, um, some, somebody who's a psychoanalyst will tell me why I've got this thing about economists. Uh, I was invited, I'm not sure what the collective noun is for Chicago economists, but I was invited to an atomization. Maybe Chicago economists wouldn't tolerate a collective noun because they don't do anything in collectives that think about being individuals. Um, and they were talking about valuing a human life this way. And I said, showing data from my Whitehall study, I said, I understand that if a high-grade civil servant dies, his wife or her husband gets a higher pension arrangement than if a low-grade civil servant dies. It's related to salary, and whether I agree with that or don't agree with that, it's neither here nor, nor there. That's the way it is. But, I said, if a low-grade civil servant gets chronic renal failure, he has an equal right to be treated to that of a high-grade civil servant. My God, they attacked me. They're yelling at me from all sides, these economists. Gary Becker, who won the Nobel Prize, I think what the Nobel Committee does for economic science, they have the faculty list of the University of Chicago and they go tick, 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 they work their way down. And so Gary Becker said to me, what if we compensated the low-grade man? What if we gave him some money and he chose the money? You'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? I said, let me see if I've understood what you've just asked me. First of all, I'm a doctor. I'm biased by human suffering. What you've just asked me, I should go to this low-grade civil servant and say, we think you're pretty worthless because you're not very high in the hierarchy. You've got this terrible disease that's going to cause a slow lingering death we're not going to treat you but we're going to give you a bit of money, not a lot of money because if we had a lot of money we'd treat you but because you're pretty worthless we'll give you a little bit of money and because he's in poverty he accepts the money and you're asking me am I happy with that no I'm not Gary Becker said, well, as long as it was a free choice. He said, your idea of the free choice and my idea of the free choice are rather different. But it's a beautifully consistent system. Rich people's lives are valued more than poor people's because they have more money. So you wouldn't want to spend much public money saving the lives of a person whose life wasn't worth much. It's wonderful. It really works. It's just deeply immoral. Deeply, deeply immoral. 
It violates everything I hold most dear. It's appalling. We'll withhold treatment from poor people because they're poor. That's not why I went into medicine. It's appalling. I spent a whole day with these people and they kept going at me. You know, what if we gave him a million dollars not to be treated? You'd be happy with that, wouldn't you? If I had a million dollars, I'd have more treatment for chronic renal failure. I wouldn't want to bribe him to die. I'd want to treat him. I wouldn't vote for any government that would bribe people to die. They really didn't get it. I think we have to value people because they're people, because they're human beings. Certainly that's why I do what I do. I don't think a Bangladeshi's life is worthless. I know we behave as if we think Bangladeshi lives are worthless. But I think that's wrong. We said in the final report of the Commission on Social Determinants of Health that health inequalities arise from a toxic combination of poor social policies and programs unfair economic arrangements and bad politics. We said, because it was a WHO report and I didn't want to come on too strong, we said social injustice is killing on a grand scale. Slightly unusual for a WHO publication. But we gave the evidence and the evidence of what you could do. And I seem to have pulled the wool over a number of eyes. President Lula in Brazil set up a Brazilian Commission on Social Determinants of Health. I had the honour to hand a copy of our report to Manmohan Singh, the Indian Prime Minister. My colleague in India, who is a member of the Commission, wrote to me 10 days ago, and she said, things take a while in India. This, we first met in India in 2005. This meeting with Dr. Singh took place in 2008 and she said now they finally agreed to set up a network of action on social determinants of health in India. Costa Rica and we did the English review which I called Fair Society Healthy Lives. I gave it that title because it was a grand claim really I claimed that if we put fairness at the heart of all policy making, health would improve and health inequalities would diminish. I'm slightly regretful that we gave it that title. The word fairness has been heard a lot lately as if it has no meaning at all, as if it has no meaning. I use fairness in a particular way. I don't use it as a label that you apply to government policy, whatever the nature of the government policy. When Andrew Lansley was still Secretary of State for Health, I had a debate with him at BMA House, British Medical Association, and I said, again, I'm a doctor. I'm concerned with health outcomes. Systematic differences, systematic inequalities in health between social groups that are avoidable by reasonable means are unfair. Hence, any action that leads to an increase or retards progress toward a decrease of these avoidable health inequalities 
are unfair. So that's how I use unfairness. Now, there's a bit of tautology in there because I define it as avoidable health inequalities. But it seems to me that that's got a little better currency than simply saying fairness is whatever the government does. And I'm a bit distressed by the nature of the debate about poverty and inequality. And if you heard the BBC proms this year, the first prom was My Fair Lady. My wife said, dumbing down. But anyway, I enjoyed it enormously. And it caused me to go back to Pygmalion, listening to the dialogue in My Fair Lady to George Bernard Shaw's original. And you know the story. And Alfred Doolittle, the dustman, comes to call on Professor Henry Higgins because Eliza Doolittle is staying in his house and she wants to learn better diction. And Pickering rightly diagnoses that Doolittle has come for money. And Pickering says, have you no morals, man? And Doolittle says, can't can't afford them, governor. Neither could you if you was as poor as me. And then Pickering talks a bit, and then Doolittle says, don't say that, governor. Don't look at it that way. What am I? Governors both, I ask you, what am I? I'm one of the undeserving poor. That's what I am. Think of what that means to a man. It means that he's up again middle-class morality all the time. If there's anything going, and I put in for a bit of it, it's always the same story. You're undeserving, so you can't have it. But my needs is as great as the most deserving widow. I don't need less than a deserving man. I need more. I don't need less arty than him, and I drink a lot more. I want a bit of amusement because I'm a thinking man. I want cheerfulness and song and band when I feel low. Well, they charge me just the same for everything as they charge the deserving. What is middle-class morality? Just an excuse for never giving me anything. And he goes on, and Higgins says, Pickering, if we were to take this man in hand for three months, he could choose between a seat in the cabinet and a popular pulpit in Wales. (laughs) And... uh, Doolittle says he wants five pounds and Higgins is so charmed by this he offers him ten and Doolittle says no I'll only drink it I just want five why am I saying this the undeserving poor there was a book by two economists there you are I'm going to say good things about economists Banerjee and Duflo called Poor Economics and they said that people look at the poor in third world countries and they say God, they make these stupid decisions they get a bit of money and instead of buying a new cow they spend it on their daughter's wedding they're just irrational and Banerjee and Duflo say so we so we and Doolittle says I want cheerfulness and a song and a band when I feel low What could be more important than your daughter's wedding? Yes, the economically correct thing to do may be to buy a new cow. 
But the thing that makes you human, the thing that allows you to lead a life of dignity, is to spend it on your daughter's wedding. But we, with our morality, says that's stupid. That's wrong. And I have to say, I'm concerned that some of that same thinking has seeped back into the current debate. Middle-class morality and the undeserving poor. I start from the position that people's conditions, the conditions in which they are born, grow, live, work and age, what we concluded with the Commission on Social Determinants of Health, is what affects their life chances. So it comes to this question of personal responsibility or social conditions. I said C. Turandot was asked to review a philosophy book on health. And I started with Turandot, Puccini's opera, if you know the story. Candidates for the princess's hand have a choice. Answer three riddles correctly and gain marriage to the princess. Fail and be executed. No aspiring young man with his eye on the main chance is forced into this. It's a free choice. And the result? Well, you could argue that the choice is fair, but the outcome is anything but. The result is a trail of dead suitors and one chaste princess. Until, of course, the tenor arrives, which usually spells the end of the soprano's chastity in, in <laughs> opera. Well, clearly, something in us thinks that's not right. Otherwise, we would be quite happy with that situation today. But we're not. We know there's something unfair about the outcome. Even though the process appeared to be fair, it was a free choice, but somehow we don't think that can be right. A free choice isn't enough. There's got to be a fair outcome. And we know that. You say to two young children, I've got ice creams. Great, we want chocolate. Well, actually, I've only got one chocolate and one vanilla. Well, we both want chocolate. What about if I toss a coin and one of you gets the chocolate the other gets the vanilla. Would that be fair? Yeah, that's fair. You get the chocolate, you get the vanilla. Unfair! Children know that it's not fair process, it's the outcome that matters. I wanted the chocolate ice cream, I didn't get it. It's unfair. The outcome, I'm not saying we should be biased solely towards outcomes, but we know the outcomes matter. Otherwise, the free choice would be enough. So when it comes to, is health a matter of personal responsibility? I say, yes, of course it is. But we have to create the conditions for people to take responsibility for their own lives. Freedom is important, but the freedom to wallow in poverty is not a freedom that's much prized. The freedom to have no education is not a freedom that many people lust after. Cure social conditions, deal with poverty and disadvantage and education. And then we can talk about personal responsibility. But like the example of the suitors for the princess's hand in Turandot, it's hardly a fair choice. With my English review, 
we had six recommendations that I will show you before I stop. But we said the context matters. Given what I've been saying about fairness, I will show you a tiny bit of data. The solid green line is gross income. It's the share of total household income enjoyed by the top 20% of earners. So in 1977, the top 20% had about 37% of total household income. Under Mrs. Thatcher, it went up sharply. We climbed this steep cliff to about 42 or 43%, and then we stayed there. Thatcher, Major, Blair, what's his name? It didn't make any difference. Once we got up there, we stayed there. Look at the bottom 20%. This is gross income plus benefits. The bottom 20% were about 9%. They went down to about 6% and stayed there. The dotted line is post-tax. Can you see the effect of taxation on income distribution? No, neither can I. I'm just a simple doctor. What do I know about clever things like fiscal policy? If you'd asked me, I would have said we had a progressive taxation system in this country. We don't. We have a proportionate taxation system because the mildly progressive income tax is balanced by steeply regressive consumption tax and council tax. In fact, we said in our report the top 20% of earners pay 35% of their income in tax, and the bottom 20% pay 38%. I think that's unfair. I think if you put fairness at the heart of all policy making, you wouldn't do that. As you can see, I'm trying to have an ethical debate based on evidence. I don't want to hear about garbage about setting the wealth producers free and God knows what. I want us to have an ethical debate based on the evidence. Here's the evidence, now let's decide what would be fair. So in my English review, we had six domains of recommendations, early child development, education and lifelong learning, create fair employment and good work for all, healthy standard of living for all, create and develop healthy and sustainable places and communities, and ill health prevention, what I call the causes of the causes. We have evidence supporting all of this, but I'm not going to show you all of that. Minimum income standard. We said you can calculate that. What's the minimum income necessary for a healthy life? I did something un unusual last autumn, and I'm going to do it again this autumn. I talked to first-year medical undergraduates at UCL. Normally we see them later or I deal with the master's students, but I talked to the first-year undergraduates. It's what they say, medical students. It's in their pre-cynical phase. And um, I talked about minimum income for healthy living, and I said it's more than food, clothes, and shelter but sufficient resources to participate in society and to maintain human dignity. We put into the calculation for an older person, part of the minimum income for healthy living is having enough money to buy presents for your grandchildren. And I said to these young people, if your granny 
hasn't got enough money to buy you presents for your birthday, she can't lead a life of dignity. I said, you came to UCL because you wanted to hear about genomics and metabolomics and proteomics and the basic biology disease. And here's this lecturer saying your granny's got to have enough money to buy you a present or she can't have a healthy life. They loved it. <laughs> they loved it. And so you get them early. <laughs> <laughs> so that's at the heart of what we're trying to do create the conditions for people to lead lives of dignity and participate in society. But that takes social action to do that. You can't just say you're on your own, mate. Go away and be dignified as you line up to get your doll check. Let me finish with an argument that I had with some economists. I say Rawls, who was professor of philosophy at Harvard, very influential justice as fairness. Look at these two graphs. This is mortality rate by social position. High, low, the social gradient. Now, under new conditions, we can improve everybody's mortality is reduced, but the gradient is steeper the inequalities in health are bigger. Now, as I understand a Rawlsian argument, Rawls's difference principle, anything that improves the lot of the worst off is fairer. So, this, with steeper inequalities, a steeper gradient, is fairer, the blue line is fairer than the red line, because the lot of the worst off has been improved. Not nearly as much as the lot of the next worst or the next or the next or the best off, but the blue line is fairer. Now, I was discussing this with a distinguished economist who said, which one would you prefer, the red or the blue? I said, do I have to choose between them? Yeah, now why? Just because you're bigger than me? I'd like a bigger family of curves. Of course, because he said to me, all economists would prefer the blue line because everybody's better off. Well, of course, how could I be against improving health for everybody? I have to be for that. But I wouldn't say job done, let's go home. I'd like to improve health for everybody and reduce inequalities. That's two social goals. And this approximates to what's been going on in Norway, in Sweden, in Finland, and in the United Kingdom. We've been improving health for everybody, but we haven't been closing the gap. We've been getting bigger inequalities. Well, it's not job done. Improving health for everybody is very welcome social advance despite what my interlocutor said when we were discussing this, I would not prefer the red one because there's narrower inequalities. I much prefer the blue one. We want better health for everybody. But I'm not prepared to go home because I want another curve that's more like that, that's got better health for everybody 
and a shallower gradient. And in fact, I haven't got it with me, but I was showing it, a lecture I was giving earlier today, in Brazil, looking at the social gradient in stunting in children, they've done just that. A steep social gradient in stunting in children, and year by year, it got flatter and flatter and flatter. Not because there was more stunting in the high income, because they brought everybody up to the best. Much flatter. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Coming back to Amartya Sen, he talks about how important control is. We not only value living well and satisfactorily, but also appreciate having control over our lives. I said I think empowerment is key. We said empowerment was at the heart of what we're trying to achieve in the Global Commission. Empowerment was at the heart of what we're trying to achieve in the English Review. To give people the conditions in which they can take control of their lives. And as I said at the beginning, I started as a dry-as-dust medical scientist, and now I think I'm toiling to a somewhat higher purpose. Thank you.